Good morning. Uh, thank you, worship team, for leading us in those wonderful songs. Uh, I just had to ask the worship team to come back after the message as well because I just felt that, you know, those songs were so appropriate, and I think one of those songs is especially appropriate at the end of the message as a response song. Um, well, it is a great privilege to open up God's Word with you. Uh, could somebody turn on that light? Thank you. There we go. <laughs> I know sometimes I do the lights normally in the back, so I kind of know it, it looks kind of dark up here at times. Um, but it is a great privilege to be able to open up God's Word with you once again. Um, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. Verses 28 to 32. And I would like to invite all of you to stand with me as we read God's Word together. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. You can follow along in yours. Matthew chapter 21, verses 28 to 32. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Our Heavenly Father, this morning it was very appropriate to sing, Jesus Christ, shine into our night. Lord, we want to see an incredible glimpse into the heart of our Savior this morning. And as we come to this parable, we pray that you would speak to not only our situation in this day and age, but also to our individual lives. Lord, I pray that if there are any here who do not really have a personal relationship with you, do not know you, have not put their faith and their trust in you, that they would come to see who you are this morning and love you and treasure you and believe in you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You may be seated. 
Again, I count it a joy to be able to come here and to open up God's Word with all of you. Um, Good news next week. Pastor Henry is scheduled to be back here preaching in the pulpit. I know we've all been waiting eagerly for his return, and I think Pastor Henry scheduled me here the week just before he comes back so that you can all feel like, oh, we definitely want Pastor Henry back. So uh, I understand. (laughs) But we will do our best this morning to take a look at the life of our Lord Jesus. And I know it's kind of tough because we're just plopping into a new passage. This is not a series that we've been doing. We're plopping right into a new passage, and sometimes we don't really know what's going on. So we do need to consider to some degree, what's the context? What's going on as we jump into a passage here in Matthew? And as I was preparing this message, I was also thinking not only about the context of this passage, but also about our context, our times, the lives that we live. I I thought about our country amidst a very raucous and heated presidential election. It's a time when there appears to be this increasing and relentless hostility towards Christians and towards our values, voters voting to pass laws that preserve our centuries-old definition of marriage, and then just in a short instant, overturned by a liberal court ruling, various liberal agendas are being propagated throughout our country. We see that as Christian groups are being persecuted and kicked out of college campuses. The government constantly intruding into the realm of religious freedom, forcing churches to perform same-sex marriages or otherwise possibly suffering some sort of legal ramification. This is the country that we live in. This is the world that we live in. And beyond this, there are a host of other issues too. Some issues more personal to each one of us. There's a constant liberalism creeping into the church landscape every day. So that many churches that once used to preach the gospel now no longer even really understand what is the essence of the gospel. It's completely diluted. I have the privilege of serving in our youth ministry, so I think about the youth of today all the time. And not just the youth in this church, but also the youth in other churches as well. Some of you are aware that we are right in the middle of CBM camp. And for those of you who are not aware, uh, our church is a part of a camp. We help to put together a camp for the youth every single summer. A week of it is for junior hires, and then another week is for high schoolers. Last week, a number of our junior high students attended this camp as well as some of the adults who served as counselors there. Some of them who served are going back again today to serve in the high school camp, and a number of our high schoolers will be attending this camp as well. And I think overall, in total, we have around 25 adults in our church who are serving as counselors at CBM camp this year. So I would encourage you, please pray for them. Pray for our students who are attending the camps. Pray for the students who are not from our church who are attending these camps. Pray for the counselors, the youth workers, the people who will be serving there. 
I think about the youth of today, and I wonder, will they grow, what will they grow up to be like? Will they grow up to be Christians? Will they believe in Jesus? Will they love Jesus? Will they have a relationship with him? Will they commit to following him all the days of their lives? Will they make a difference for the kingdom of God here on earth? And oftentimes when we go to CBM camp, we encounter somewhat of a bleak situation. What do we see as counselors? Well, we see youth who have grown up going to church but have absolutely no personal relationship with God whatsoever. We see youth who have spent years in Sunday school but do not even understand the gospel of Christ, let alone share it with a friend. We see young people holding on to ungodly relationships because they care little about their relationship with Christ. We see young people who have heard their whole lives about the importance of holy living, living a life that honors Jesus Christ, and then turning around and choosing to live a life of drugs, parties, sex. All the while, going to church going to Sunday school, going to fellowship. We encounter young men and women who cannot discern between God's will according to the Bible and the sinful worldly agenda that's being propagated at schools. Just a few days ago at camp, I was talking with a pastor friend who was sharing with some of us that they were having a day camp, much like ours, for the children in the summer, and they were interviewing youth workers, children's workers, for the process. And and, and it's part of their process, so he sat down with one gal, I, I believe she was a high school student, and she was sharing about how she is really involved in leadership roles and leadership activities at school, and so he asked her, well, what are you involved with? What have you done? And she proudly said, well, I, along with my co leaders helped to start and organize a school-wide day of silence. A day of silence is an activity that promotes and supports the LGBT community. And so, my pastor friend said, who came up with the idea? And she said, but we were told to do it by one of our teachers. See, the the world's system is infiltrating into the lives of Christians and into the church so that young people have no idea what what is true, what is false, what is correct, what is wrong. What does God's Word say about issues like homosexuality or sex before marriage? That's the world that we live in. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. This is the modern context that I was just absorbed with as I was preparing this message. And on top of that, there is a more important context for us to consider. And that is the context of our passage this morning. 
And so if you are following along and you want to know where we're headed, just a really basic outline, uh, we're going to talk about the context of this passage first. Then we are going to look at the parables themselves. And then after that, we will look at the application. Okay, real simple, the context, the parables themselves, and then the application. And in fact, Jesus is going to give us the application very clearly. Jesus is at the end of his life. He is at the end of his ministry. This is his final week. And what that means is the tension that will ultimately lead to his crucifixion has been building and building and building, coming to a climax. And this tension is reaching its highest point. And if you look at the beginning of this chapter, here in chapter 21, you see the record of his triumphal entry what many would call Palm Sunday. He rides into the city on a donkey, and the people absolutely adore him. So take a look at chapter 21, verses 6 through 9. It says, The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And they see him as the Savior. The Savior who will deliver them from their enemies. They adore him as their deliverer. This really is, in many ways, somewhat of a king's welcome. They are welcoming their king. The next day, Jesus goes to the temple in Jerusalem, and he finds that they've turned it into a den of thieves. And by the way, this is not the first time that he's found the temple that way. So what does he do? He's riled up. And if you take a look in chapter 21, verses 12 and 13, it says, And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my father's house, my house, sorry, shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. So there was corruption here. He overturned their tables and their chairs and he drove them out because this system had become really corrupt. In fact, they've turned the the house of the Lord, a place of worship, into a place, a marketplace, really. And it wasn't just a marketplace. It was a marketplace for thieves. They would tell worshipers coming with their offerings and their sacrifices, oh, you know, your offerings aren't good enough. You have to buy ours. And then they jack up the price and make lots of money. So they were taking advantage of their own people. And this is why Jesus is so upset about what's going on here. And he turns over the tables and the chairs and he drives them out. Now think about this. Who's in charge at the temple? In other words, who was the boss overseeing it? Overseeing the corruption. 
It would be the chief priests, the elders, the religious leaders. And in comes Jesus, turning over their establishment. And so we read in verse 15. Take a look at verse 15. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. How dare you? Who do you think you are? Such was the rising tension throughout Jesus' ministry. Masses of people followed Jesus everywhere he went. Many adored him, but at the same time, many despised him. In fact, the religious elite so hated him, they constantly tried to trap him so that, oh, if he could just say the wrong thing, we can kill him. So here we are now. This is a day after he cleared the temple. He returns to the city to teach in the temple. And I want to draw our attention to something very peculiar that happens. On his way, he becomes hungry, and he sees a fig tree by the side of the road. Take a look with me at verses 18 to 19. In the morning... As he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. What an interesting incident. Somewhat odd, isn't it? Why would he do that? We'll come back to this later. I think it will become more clear as we move forward from here. So let's just keep that in the back of our minds, okay? After he arrives at the temple, he is approached by the religious leaders and they question him. So look at verses 23 to 27. When he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, so they interrupted him. By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them. I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. So he's, going to ask, he, he's kind of turning it on them. You want me to answer your question? Fine. Answer mine first. So here's the question. Verse 25. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? He's talking about John the Baptist. Was the baptism of John the Baptist from heaven or from man? Who is John the Baptist? John the Baptist was the last of the Old Testament prophets. He came to prepare the way for Jesus. And he came preaching a message of repentance and calling people to be baptized. 
And so Jesus is asking these religious leaders, okay, John the Baptist, his baptism, was it from God or was it just from man, man-made? Is there divine authority to what he was doing or was he just some guy wanting to do his own thing? And take a look what it says next. And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. See, they have a huge dilemma now, and what they are saying is, Okay, if we say that John the Baptist was sent by God, we're now in trouble because John the Baptist was pointing to Christ. But if we say, oh, you know, John the Baptist, he's just from man, he's doing his own thing, now the people will get angry with us because the people love John the Baptist. They saw him as a prophet. So it's a lose-lose situation for us. What do we do? Look at their answer. Verse 27, so they answered Jesus, we do not know. Isn't that interesting? Sounds like our politicians today, right? Oh, I can't say that because I'm going, I'm going to offend that group. I can't say that. I'm going to offend that group. You know, I don't think I'm an authority to, to speak on that issue. I have no comment. And look at what Jesus says. Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Very similar. Politics doesn't change very much, I guess. Okay, And if you think that our political scene today is pretty heated, if you think that our election season is pretty ugly, turning violent, well, listen, this was even worse. And we know that because by the end of this ordeal, they will kill him. That's how bad things are in the context of our passage this morning. Okay? That's the context. Now let's move on to the parable. The, the context sets the backdrop for our passage this morning, which is a parable. Now, in response to this kind of antagonism, this kind of hostility, Jesus tells a parable. Actually, he doesn't tell one. He tells a series of three parables, but we will only look at the very first one. And here's the parable. He says, what do you think? Notice that he begins by asking a question. A lot of times when Jesus tells parables to teach certain spiritual truths, he he doesn't really begin with a question. He'll just start telling the parable. Here, he begins with a question. What do you think? What do you think? Because he wants their response. And we're going to see why. He wants to elicit their response. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir. 
but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? Now, that's the parable. Not too long, really simple, very short, very direct to the point. This man has two sons, and let's look at this first son first. He went to the, the first son, and he says, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And this son basically says, no, I will not. I'm not going to go. What does this reveal about this first son? To all you parents here, is he a good son? An obedient son? No, he's not. Just think about that. How would you feel, those of you who are parents, how would you feel if you had a child that outright says no when you tell him to do something? I mean, some of you are probably thinking, right? Some of you are ready to pull out your rod of discipline. And that's understandable. He is disrespectful. He is rude. He is disobedient. How dare you, child? And don't forget, this is a context that's very different from our context today. In their society, it was a patriarchal society. Father was king. And so you can imagine as the people are listening to this, how outraged they're feeling. How can this child say to his father, no? That's disrespectful. That's disobedient. He should be punished. He should be disciplined. Now, I'm not a parent, but I can kind of relate. I grew up with a brother, too, so there were two of us like this, and we were certainly disobedient very often. And growing up, it wasn't a rod of discipline. It was the feather duster of discipline for, me, for <laughs> my family. It would sting, and it would leave a mark for a while. Okay, here we see a blatant rebelliousness, blatant rebelliousness, especially in a culture where this is not acceptable at all. And you can see why Jesus does this, why he puts it this way. It's because he wants these religious leaders to get emotional and go, that is not right. And you know where he's going with this, right? This son outright rejects his father's command and says no to his face. Now, we think he's very disobedient. But what's amazing about this son is that later he changes his mind. Now, for those of you who are parents, isn't this what you would want? If your child was disobedient in this way, don't you want him to change? And stop being that way. And to obey. And that's what he does. He changes his mind. And he, eventually he chooses to go. That's the first son. Then here's the second son. The father goes to the second son, says the same thing. The second son says, yes. Yes, sir. Now, sounds like a good boy, right? But what happens? He doesn't go. 
He says yes, but later he does not go. So here is also another rebellious, disobedient son. Only he came with a disguise. It was the disguise of obedience. But deep down inside his heart, he was rejecting his father's command as well. He too was rebelling only inwardly, while on the outside, showing a face of obedience. He ends up not going, even though he said he would. And I have to throw this out there again. Any parents can relate to this type of behavior? I'm guilty. My parents, Justin, growing up, take out the trash, okay? Ten minutes later, take out the trash, okay? Ten minutes later, did you take out the trash yet? Fine. Disobedient. And maybe you guys can relate. No, it's just me. I'm sure it's just me. You guys can't relate. Okay? He rebels, and he doesn't go. He ends up not going. Okay? Now, for the first son, I want you to notice a very important detail. In the text, it says he changes his mind. Look at verse 29. He answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. Notice here that for the second son, he changed his mind too, right? He said he would go, and then he ended up not going. But it does not say that he changed his mind. It only says that for the first son. There's a reason for that, and we'll get to it. Just keep that in mind for now. So that's essentially the end of the parable. It's short, it's simple. And now Jesus returns to his original question. Remember, he started off the parable by asking, what do you think? And now he says, which of the two did the will of his father? See, he wants a response. And it's not hard at this point for them to respond. They immediately respond correctly. They say the first. The first son did the will of the father. Now, there might be a few of you who have some different translations or different versions of the Bible, and a few of you might have had it flipped. The first son was the second son, and the second son was the first son, and then their response to who did the will of the father is the latter, not the first. You might find that. Some of you, if you have an older version of the New American Standard Bible or maybe a different translation, you might see that. And that's because here there is a textual issue with some of the the older manuscripts, okay? But most of the modern scholars are in agreement that the correct translation is the first. So the first son was the one who eventually changed his mind and went and did it. The second son was the one who said he would and then didn't do it. So who did the will of his father? The first. All right? Now, that's the parable. Now let's move on to the application. The application. What is the application of this parable? What is the meaning and the, re- the relevance? And actually, Jesus gives us the understanding and the application of this parable. And the parable highlights for us two types of people. Two types of people. 
people of faith and people of unbelief. People of faith and people of unbelief. Look with me at verses 31 and 32. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. So let's talk first about the people of faith. This is the first son in the parable. He was the one who was defiant and rebellious openly to his dad right in the beginning, and then eventually he changed. Who are these people? Jesus tells us they are the tax collectors and the prostitutes. Who are the tax collectors? Tax collectors were Jews. Remember, at this time, the people of Israel, the Jewish people, were under the oppression of the Roman government. And so there were some Jewish people who were trying to get ahead, selfishly, who basically purchased these franchises from the Roman government to collect tax for them. So immediately, the Jewish people looked upon that with disfavor. You're a traitor. How can you work for this government that is oppressing us? But on top of that, it was worse. They took advantage of their position in the Roman government as tax collectors, and they would take more. They were extortionists. They were stealing, taking extra and pocketing it. That's why they were so hated by the Jewish community, because they were traitors and they were hurting their own people. In fact, if you remember, in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus teaches us about church discipline. And there, if you remember, the process of church discipline is such. It first starts with if somebody sins against you, you yourself approach that person and reconcile. Seek reconciliation. That's the first step of church church discipline. You seek reconciliation. If that person will not repent of his sin, then the next step is to bring two or three witnesses. Because Now, it's to bring a charge against him. You need two or three witnesses, so you need others to come with you. And even then, if that person refuses, refuses to repent, refuses to turn from his sin, the next step in the process is tell it to the church. And the point of that is we now tell it to the church so that the whole church can come down upon this person to encourage him, turn from your sin, repent, come back to the Lord. And if that fails, if that person still will not repent of their sin, the last step of church discipline is what we call excommunication. And here's what Jesus says. If that person will not listen to the church, treat him as a Gentile and a tax collector. Kick them out of your midst. They do not belong in your community, in your society. Get rid of them. They, are, they should be outcasts. That's how terrible tax collectors were viewed. They were evil. Couple that with, 
he says not just tax collectors here, but he also mentions prostitutes. Prostitutes were of the lowest profession because they used their body in immoral ways in order to make a living. It was a a great dishonoring of their own bodies and also to God. So here you have tax collectors, you have prostitutes, and Jesus is basically saying, they're the scum of the earth. They're the scum of the earth. And he's saying to these religious leaders, the scum of the earth are entering into the kingdom over you. Wait a minute. But we're the religious people, Jesus. Look at our garments, our religious garments. Look at how we pray. Everybody in town knows that we are the religious leaders. And Jesus is saying to them, you are worse than the scum of the earth. Why? Verse 32. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. Again, he's talking about John the Baptist. Remember, they wouldn't answer his question. Well, Jesus is coming back to that. John the Baptist came to you in the way of righteousness. He was the one who prepared the way for Christ. John the Baptist was not only a righteous man, he was a man sent by God. That's what it means that he came in the way of righteousness. And he came preaching a baptism of repentance and faith in the coming Savior, Jesus Christ. He was the one who acknowledged the superiority of Christ to this world. Remember, he said, Jesus Christ must increase, I must decrease. And all the people, the tax collectors, sorry, of all the people, the tax collectors and the prostitutes listened to his message, repented, and came to faith turn from their ways. Listen, this is the good news of the gospel. If you're a Christian here this morning, you are the tax collector and the prostitute. Don't miss that. None of us were the religious elite. We were all sinners. We were all defiant and rebellious against our God, just like that first son was to his father. We were all the scum of the earth. Paul says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the amazing thing is that something happened, a miracle happened, just like to that first son. Suddenly, we don't know why, there was change, a change of mind where we once loved sin and we once loved worshiping ourselves and getting whatever we wanted for ourselves, all of a sudden now, Jesus looked beautiful. All of a sudden now, the gospel was sweet. All of a sudden now, our sin looked terrible before a holy God. And all of a sudden, we realize Jesus Christ is a great Savior. That's a miracle. 
It's a change. God granted us this repentance, this turning away from our sin. When I was growing up, I was taught that the word repentance means to turn 180 degrees away from sin. That's a beautiful picture. That's a wonderful, wonderful description. That's absolutely correct. But you know what a more simplistic meaning of repentance is? It's right here in our text, to change your mind, to change your mind. The word appears here in verse 29. He said he would not go, but then later it says he changed his mind. That word can be translated as repented. He repented. And remember earlier we saw that it doesn't say that the second son changed his mind. And I said, there was a reason for that. It's because he did not repent. See, the significance of changing his mind is really that the idea here is he got saved. He was rebellious. He was obnoxious. He was against his father. And somehow his whole mindset, his whole heart changed. It didn't happen for the second brother. There is a complete heart renewal where a sinful rebel used to be. This is the depiction of the people of faith. Now let's move on to the other type of people here. The second type of people. People of unbelief. People of unbelief. And this This is found in verses 28 to 32. Who are the people of unbelief here? Take a look and pay close attention to the second person plural pronoun, you. Let me read it again. Verse 28, what do you think? Jump to verse 30. And he went to the other son and said the same, and he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Verse 31, which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Who are the you? It's the religious leaders. Back in verse 23, when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching. Isn't this amazing? There is no fear in Christ. He tells a parable one that he knows will draw out their emotion because of the outrage of how the son responds. And then he asks them, what do you guys think? Knowing they're going to say, well, you know, the son who was obedient at last, that son is the good one. He's the one who did the will of the father. And now Jesus says, listen, you're the bad son. The tax collectors, the prostitutes, all these sinners... They're in the kingdom. You are out of the kingdom. 
to their face. You see, on the outside, these religious leaders had a form of righteousness and godliness. But there was no real faith there. Oh, they could walk the walk and they could talk the talk. But deep down inside, despite all the yes sirs that they were saying, it was a rebelliousness, a hatred, a disobedience. There was no faith. And evidently, this is what the whole cursing of the fig tree was all about. You see, a fig tree, remember Jesus was walking into town, walking into Jerusalem. He was hungry. He, passed, he sees a fig tree on the side of the road, goes up to the fig tree, no fruit, curses it. Why? You have to understand, fig season is usually right around the beginning of summer. Right now, in our passage, it is only spring. So it's not fig season yet. And typically, for fig trees, the fruit comes before the leaves. So if you were to see a fig tree with leaves, you should expect that there to be fruit. The fruit arrives first. And so he walked up to this fig tree because he saw leaves, and there were no fruit. It's not even in season. It shouldn't be sprouting leaves. You see, this tree was sick. Perhaps it was a diseased tree. And Jesus uses this tree to paint a picture of Israel, of the Jewish religious system, On the surface, you would expect there to be fruit. No fruit. Something's wrong with this tree. And if you will not bear fruit, you will never bear fruit again. And he curses the tree. It's over. You have to understand, this is an indictment of Israel and especially of her leaders. When the Son of God comes, where else would he expect to find fruit but his own people? Right? I mean, think about this. For over 2,000 years, God Almighty had been walking with the people of Israel through thick and thin, protecting them from all their enemies, one after another after another. And even when they were sinful, he was faithful to preserve some of them because he made a promise to Abraham. He walked with them year after year after year, century after century after century, millennia after millennia. So finally, the Son of God arrives on the scene. Where is the fruit? Where should he look? To his people, right? No fruit. No fruit. And so he judges them. By the way, today, 2016, God is still faithful to Israel. They are still around. 
Isn't that amazing? And so you can understand his disappointment. And the fig tree is just a depiction of the rottenness of their Jewish system. John the Baptist came from God. They rejected him. You remember Jesus stood over Jerusalem and he wept over Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often would I have gathered you like a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you would not have it. They rejected John the Baptist, even though he came paving the way for the Messiah. Instead, the tax collectors and the prostitutes received him. And get this, even when they saw these sinners, these tax collectors, these prostitutes transformed by grace, look at what it says in verse 32. He says, you did not afterward change your minds. And there is our word again, repent. Even when you saw all these sinners changed, transformed, repenting, coming to the Lord, yet you did not change your mind. You did not repent. And now, standing before their Savior, their own Messiah, they are going to kill him. As I consider the context in which we live, a time in which there is great uneasiness about the direction of our country, our world, a time when there is great political tension, economic uncertainties, social unrest every, every week when you turn on the TV. A time when it seems as though Christians are targeted by liberal agendas relentlessly. A time when liberal ideologies are seeping into the church so that people no longer see a church as a lifeboat rescuing lost souls by proclaiming the gospel anymore. Instead, they see the church as a social club where people can do fun things together. And spread a message of positivity. Oh, sin, hell, death. Let's not talk about that. Jesus, cross. Oh, that's negative. Let's just talk about acceptance. A time when the youth of the church are losing their bearings in an increasingly secular world. As we consider this context in which we live, I want to say this. Don't lose hope. Don't lose hope. Because the good news of the gospel is that no matter how bad you are, no matter how far you have fallen, no matter how deep your defiance and rebellion against God, you can still change your mind 
and today, this very day, enter into the kingdom. And on top of that, no matter how bleak the situation looks, no matter how ugly our world is getting, no matter how hostile people are becoming, let us not forget that, you know, Jesus was in that very kind of context. Far worse. They even killed him. And as a result, eternal life. Amidst the darkness, in God's sovereign plan, he orchestrated for all the evil to bring about salvation for all of us. We do not lose hope, and we continue to be faithful to proclaim the gospel of Christ. That is why we are here. Even in the greatest of darkness, There is incredible light. Praise God for the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of sins that came because of the darkness that Christ endured. So, those of you who, in a few hours, are about to hop in your cars and carpool up to Mount Gilead for CBM camp where you will spend a week, hours after hours, counseling these high school students, sitting down with them, walking with them, getting into their lives. There may be times where you might feel, I can't get through to him. I can't get through to her. She's not listening. Is this really making a difference? And you might feel like, I don't know what I'm doing. To you I say, don't lose heart. Press on. Preach the gospel. Show them Jesus Christ. And leave them with a glimpse of your own love and appreciation for our great Savior. And for the rest of us, you might not be going to camp. That's okay. Your camp is your family, your friends, your relatives, your coworkers. Press on. Shine the light of Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that in your kindness, You soften our hearts. We know, Lord, we too could be like those religious leaders. We too could have gone through life thinking we are better than we really are. We could have gone on through our lives deceived that we are righteous and holy people, good people, and be shocked when we end up in condemnation and judgment. Thank you for your grace. In our blindness, in our lostness, 
you loved us. And even when your own people hated you, you still brought salvation into this world. Father, we are not worthy. We are undeserving. And forever will we be in that state. How great is your grace for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.